Well, my clock is ticking. I got a lot of information to cover. So uh, why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? As you can see, we're in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Actually, let me, uh, let me back up just for context's sake. Into verse 17, I'll read through uh, verse 26. Uh, not, yeah, verse 17, sorry. Did I say 13? See, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, or that it was said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's light, Lord, it's life. And I pray that as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, that you would grant us grace not only to see the malady of our own heart, but that you would grant us grace, Lord, to walk in your word. So, Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. It's good to see you guys. So just as a reminder regarding, you know, the whole Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is explaining things that pertain to the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes, as we looked at them, they describe really the disposition of the citizens of the kingdom. And now uh, he's really providing what we might call the edicts of the kingdom, what the people are like, the Beatitudes, and how the people behave in the rest of the sermon. Or we might say how the people ought to behave, because if you've read through the Sermon on the Mount lately, you realize you don't behave so well. Okay? And, uh, but we'll get to that as we go through this. And then as Jesus uh, gets into all of this, especially now, as his style was, he begins to add a little bit of controversy. And there's no better way to get people's attention or to draw a crowd than to uh, apply some controversy or to pick a fight. And later on, Jesus will be a first-rate fight picker. And, uh, and that's how he would draw crowds. That's he would, how he would get people together. I hope that doesn't sound irreverent, um, but um, I'll prove it to you later, that he was just good at it. So, um, so six times. Once at the beginning of every section, Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, but I say to you. Yeah, Jesus is 
actually clarifying something that he's already alluded to in verse 17 through 19. Uh, there, there were those who, as we talked about last time, that they were accusing Jesus of being uh, lawless. They were accusing him of trying to destroy the law and the prophets to set it aside and lead Israel another direction. Uh, the Apostle Paul was accused of the same thing. But Jesus, of course, corrected this notion saying that uh, it's, it's not destroying the law. That's not what I'm doing. I'm here to, to fulfill them, the law and the prophets. And he says, in fact, the word of God is indestructible, and therefore nothing in his word, not even the most minute detail, will pass away till it's all fulfilled. There's nothing, there's no way to destroy it. And therefore, he says, because it's indestructible, whoever violates the word in the, the smallest degree and teaches others to do so, he says, you, they will be least in the, he, in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps it and teaches others, he said, will be the greatest And then Jesus, you know, he concludes with a very shocking statement. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the the Greek is more intensified by the double negative where Jesus says, you will by no means enter the kingdom. In Greek, the the coupling of the two terms, "ao may, emphasize the negation in regard to a future reality. It means not at all, no, never will you enter the kingdom of heaven. I just come out and say it strong. Yeah. No, not at all, not ever. For entrance into the kingdom of God, a righteousness, he says, that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That is prerequisite. Now, when Jesus says something like that, that the righteousness has to exceed the superheroes of Israel, now he has everyone's attention. Okay, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. If they're in attendance, now they probably were because they were the watchdogs of Israel. They're always on the lookout for heretics, and Jesus was on the watch list. Okay, he was, according to them, he was a first-rate false teacher, and, and it was their job to keep calm in Israel, especially if one of these false teachers was coming across to the people as a messiah because that meant insurrection, and that would involve the Romans, and then it would be a big mess. So Jesus was being watched very, very closely. But it's to this last declaration about the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus is now trying to explain. Because see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the teachers of Israel. You remember when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John 3.10, he said, are you not the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You see, the people of Israel understood the law of Moses according to the interpretation given to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. That is their rabbis or their rabbin. Rabbinical teaching was referred to as the tradition of the elders. We'll see that uh, be said in the Gospels. Tradition, we have to understand, it refers to oral teaching. It's what was uh, transmitted orally by the rabbis themselves. And so the oral teaching of the rabbis created for Israel, a standard of righteousness based upon their interpretation of the law. And it's that interpretation that now Jesus is beginning to challenge. You see, the problem is if you get the interpretation wrong about any given passage, you'll get the application wrong. And what Jesus is saying is your standard will miss the mark. It'll miss the mark. And he said, unless your righteousness, which is a standard, does not exceed the standard that has been set by the scribes and Pharisees, you will be excluded. So those six times Jesus said, 
You have heard it said that it's been said. That is, he's referring to oral tradition. But I say to you. So here, Jesus isn't challenging the word of God, which is true and indestructible. He's challenging rabbinical Judaism, okay? Rabbinical oral tradition. If Jesus intended to challenge the word of God, as, as some say that he is, he would have said, as it is written, but I say to you. He doesn't do that. That would actually contradict what he said he did not come to do in verse 17. You see, whenever Jesus said, as it is written, or is it not written, he was appealing to the absolute authority of God's word. He says this some 30 times in the Gospels to establish final authority on whatever the discussion is about, whatever the controversy is. According to Jesus, every issue of morality, every issue of theology had to be settled by the Old Testament scriptures. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard that we've said, but I say to you. You guys hear a lot of stuff that's said, don't you? Yeah. So Jesus, he's not going to abrogate or change the word of God in any way, as some say that he is. If he could do that, you have to understand, the word of God would then be destructible, and it's not. Also, if Jesus abrogated, that is by adding to or taking away from the law, he would be in violation of the law. Doesn't the law condemn such a thing? Do not add, do not take away, Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32. So Jesus cannot honor the law by breaking the law. So he's not adding, he's not taking away. He is dismissing the false interpretation of the law by the scribes and Pharisees. And then he's going to give the people the, the proper, we would say, exegesis, the proper interpretation of the passage, what God meant by what he said. Now, you need to understand something as well, that by bringing this correction the way that he is, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's affirming his own divine authority, his own, okay? For only God can explain perfectly what God meant. Only the Spirit of God knows what is in the heart of God. And Jesus is claiming that for himself. He's saying all that the religious authorities in Israel have said is wrong when it comes to my Father's word, but I'm here to tell you what it means. That is a brave statement in the setting, is it not? It's brave. Something else is not only is Jesus the divine interpreter of God's word, he's the very interpreter of God himself. Look at what John says. John 1.18, he says, he says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. The Greek word uh, here is exegeomai. We get our word exegesis from it. Exegesis has to do with a particular discipline of interpreting the scriptures so that the word speaks for itself. This way, the Bible determines for itself what is meant by what is written. You understand? By way of exegesis, the interpreter, that's us, we're trying to discover what the original author meant by what he said. Uh, to many people, though, they practice something called eisegesis, where the interpreter decides for himself what he wants the text to say. Uh, TBN employs plenty of these people, and uh, cults are started by these people. Rather than being subject to the word, they become the arbitrator of it. In exegesis, it's all about discovery. Discovery. What did the original author mean by what he said? And then when we discover that, we yield our lives to it. You've heard eisegetical preachers. They're always inventing meaning for the text. They don't discover anything. They install their own meaning. But the thing is, if you believe the Bible is God's word, you must 
constantly be searching for his meaning. And then when you explain it, you must simply become an extension of the text. Amen? Now, so now back to Jesus as the one who exegetes the Father to us. You guys, we have to, we have to be careful to understand that Jesus alone can exegete or explain the Father to us, God. When we do this for ourselves, we arrive at something called idolatry, an idea of God that is inconsistent with his nature and his character, his attributes. We need God to understand God. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And he is, that is, Christ is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'll tell you who I want to hear from. It's Jesus, okay? It's for Jesus to tell us who God is, what he is like, and what his will is for us from his word. For Christ is God the Son, sent by the Father. So according to Deuteronomy 18 and just a host of other passages, it's Jesus who is the true exegete of God and of his word. Nobody has that ability like him to explain the scriptures to us, not like the one who authored it. And that's why we look to him. We go to him for what we ought to believe and how we ought to behave. And of course, this should have been no surprise to the Jews who were actually expecting what Moses predicted. God told Israel, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, speaking to Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be that whatever, or whoever rather will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him, Deuteronomy 18, 18. And then the prophet Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, he will exalt the law and make it honorable, Isaiah 42, 21. And so there he was, standing before Israel, declaring God to them and interpreting the word for them. And here we are, here we are, before the exegete of the Father. So the Sermon on the Mount, the most amazing sermon ever preached, um, you have to put up with me relaying it to you. So apologies now, but let us yield our hearts and minds to his, considering his word afresh as Jesus asserts himself as the exegete of God and of the word. Let's begin. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Remember, Jesus did not say, as it is written. Okay, now this exact statement uh, is written in Exodus 20, verse 13 in the Ten Commandments, but Jesus isn't talking about what was written, but about what the rabbis said about what was written. Jesus is challenging their interpretation of this command. Now the rest of Jesus' statement about murder being, the murderer rather, being in the danger of judgment is probably a reference to Numbers 35, verse 12. Uh, it's repeated almost verbatim. From that text, a, a manslayer in Israel could, he could, he could run for refuge, essentially, to a city of refuge, a designated city. Uh, and he would stay there safely until he went on trial. And if he was found guilty of murder, then he would be put to death. He'd be executed. The problem with the interpretation of the rabbis, when it came to the sixth commandment, is that it didn't go far enough. So Jesus 
clarifies. He says, but I say to you, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. How comfortable are you guys right now? <laughs> When's the last time that I used that word? Yeah. The problem wasn't with what the rabbis said about this commandment. It's, it's what, the, what they failed to say. Okay? It's what they limited it to. Now, when you read the Ten Commandments, you get the sense that this is an, an, an abbreviation. And it's true. The Ten Commandments are an abbreviation. And then it's for the rest of the Torah to unpack all of it and explain the rest of it for us. It gives perspective. And that's what Jesus is going to do now. Thankfully, he's going to abbreviate the first five books for us. Amen? In one sermon. So he was a master, if he could do that. The rabbis left the condition of a person's heart out of it. As long as you don't kill anybody, but you can be embittered in your heart toward people. Because that's okay. That's virtuous. That's essentially it. But God is first concerned with the heart of man. As Warren Wiersbe said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. The matter of the heart. The rabbis had reduced the law of God to a penal code, to a penal code with the threat of penalty for failure. Now, of course, God gave the law and intended for his people to obey, but establishing a bunch of rules to keep the people in check was really not the point, okay? God prescribed the law to reveal the true nature of sin, that it corrupts and that it destroys relationships both between God and between man. Romans 5.20. The, the law was given to intensify the gravity, the nature of sin, and make its presence in the heart known. Romans 3.19-21. Romans with my children for our family worship. And the law works like a magnifying glass. I mean, we, especially when we sin, we don't think it's a big deal. We always think it when, when other people sin the same way we do, it's a big deal. And so the law was given... Paul says that it might intensify sin. So like a magnifying glass that is placed over the ant that the, the boy is trying to burn with the sunlight. But you draw the magnifying glass and what happens to the ant? It gets uglier, okay? It gets bigger. And the law of God is like that with our sin. It, 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 it resides over us and then it's drawn back. And then we begin to grasp the nature of our own depravity, how far we've fallen short of that standard that God has set. That's why God gave the law. Paul says it serves as a tutor to lead us to Christ, but never as a tool to make us righteous. Galatians 3.24, we need Christ to make us righteous. So the command to not murder should never have been reduced to just the physical act, never. It was meant to address the attitude of a person's heart wherein lies is the driving force for murder. Even the law addressed this in Leviticus. I hate to say it, but Jesus isn't saying anything new. And he didn't come to really say anything new at this point. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Yeah. It's impossible to actively love your neighbor as yourself if you're angry with them, hate them, and if you hold a grudge against them. If you can do that, well, you can't. Okay, don't even try it. And if you love your, your neighbor as yourself, there's something you probably won't do to them. You probably won't kill them, okay? So the rabbis did not go far enough interpreting the abbreviated form of God's commands as it's just recorded there in the Ten Commandments. They thought as long as they didn't murder anyone that they would be just fine. They could despise others 
all they wanted and feel justified in their anger. And they weren't concerned about any recourse for what was going on in the heart. And as we travel more through the Gospels, you'll see that the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees caused them to despise everyone but their companions. And they probably did that in their heart as well. Okay. It's the issue of the heart. Anger is the root. Murder is the ultimate fruit. And according to Jesus, the whole tree, root and fruit, is bad. It's bad. Now, as a side note, um, murder is wrong because man was created in the image of God. Any assault on another person is assault on God. Genesis 9, 6, mind you, this is um, hundreds and hundreds of years before the law was given. It says, whoever shed man, sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So man is a protected species because he was created in God's image. And that's why we should protect all of human life, whether that life is found in the womb, among the terminally ill, the developmentally disabled, and so forth. All life. And the only exception to this must be assigned by God, as we see in the text. Okay? Murderers forfeit that protection, as do other sorts of crimes. When it came to the issue of anger, as it leads to murder, whether it's in one's heart or the physical act, uh, there's this interesting conversation that God has with Cain in Genesis 4. He's speaking to Cain before he murdered his, his brother Abel. God went to him and said this, and I, I think that there's something very tender in the heart of God in this. He comes to Cain and he says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, Cain, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God is trying to intercept this man from committing a serious offense, isn't he? He is. He was angry, Cain, because God rejected his offering, but had accepted his brother's offering, Abel's offering. But the anger in his heart was directed at his brother who was really innocent. God wasn't only concerned for Abel, he's concerned for Cain being overcome by anger. The problem lied here first. And even if Cain didn't actually kill his brother, murder was still in his heart through anger. He had been murdering Abel all day in his heart. It was bad. And as Jesus says in our text, anger leads to slander. That's what we do when we don't have the courage to actually kill someone. We just assassinate their character, right? Well, what's the problem with that? It seems to be the, the thing of the day in our culture, doesn't it? Yeah. It just can't be for the people of Christ. Our king has limited our speech. I know in America we think, well, we have the freedom of speech. Well, as soon as you become a citizen of heaven, that speech is limited, okay? when it comes to slander. And this comes back to the image of God as well. James says this. He says, with it, the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude. Same thing as image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings, my brother, and these things ought not to be so. So people are off limits when it comes to murder. And when it comes to slander, God says, that's an assault on me when you do that. Now, if you could imagine a world where we were in the habit of protecting others, both in word and deed, because of the image of God and man. Look, if, if, if man is not created in the image of God, what's wrong with slandering and killing people, honestly? Because it's troublesome? Because it's messy? If we're not created in God's image, I should be able to do to you whatever I want. But because you're fashioned in the image of God, you're sacred. You're holy unto God. You're protected. 
Earth would be a beautiful place if we would respect people as the image bearers of God. Now, just real quick, a quick note on anger. Jesus is not saying that we should never be angry under any circumstance. We're actually commanded, be angry, you guys have heard this text, and do not sin. So you can be angry and it not be sinful. You can have what we might call righteous indignation. Uh, Jesus got angry because of the hardness of the Pharisees, uh, their hearts toward the man with the withered hand, Mark 3, uh, verse 5. He, he was just angered by the total absence of mercy toward those who were suffering. So whenever we uh, see Jesus and, and he's observing injustice and the exploitation of people, he's just filled with fury. Okay? Uh, the scene in the temple is always a fun scene. It's, it's a very, when you read the text, it's a very premeditated thing. Jesus doesn't like come into the temple and he's like, what's going on? And then he just starts ripping stuff up. No, he goes and he, he gathers up some cords and he starts weaving them together. What do you think the apostles were doing while he was doing that? Uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Oh, you'll see. It's going to be good. And then he just trashes the place. He was overcome by zeal for the house of his father. It's good stuff. As believers, we're even commanded to hate evil, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And I would say that if you're not incensed by all that is happening in our world and in our culture, you are morally broken. You have something morally wrong with you. Nobody can view this stuff and not be bugged by it. So righteous anger is a response to evil that I believe comes from being created in the image of God. But anger must have its proper place. Back to Matthew 5, 21. Jesus explains that if, you, that if you harbor anger against your brother, he says you'll be subject to the judgment. But if you call him raka, which is Aramaic for empty, it's probably a reference to somebody's head, okay? You'll be in danger of the council, he says. But if you say to your brother, you fool, you idiot, Jesus says, you'll be in danger of hellfire. And hellfire, the words Gehenna Pur, which is the valley of Hinnom. It's, it's a it's a trash heap, a refuse heap south of Jerusalem, and it burned perpetually. The Jews never let it go out. Okay? And on the heap of Gehenna was human refuse. There was carcasses, waste of all kinds. It constantly emitted a foul stench, and it just always burned. And somebody along the way said, that is a good word for the final resting place. It's not rest for the wicked, but uh, that's their abode for eternity place where the fire is never quenched and its inhabitants never die. Jesus says, um, where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, uh, many scholars believe that that worm is a reference to the wicked. So, interesting. So, for the verbal assault on others, Jesus says that people are in danger of the judgment, the council, and or hellfire. Now, these, he cannot be referring to human institutions because what court is going to uphold such a moral standard? This is not going to happen. So Jesus must be referring to divine judgment. Let's move on. This is actually my favorite part of the text. I don't like the first part, to be honest. It requires too much disciplining of my tongue. Just ask my children. Jesus says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So in, the, in the, the old system of worship with the temple, gifts were brought into the temple to the altar for worship. 
Okay? But Jesus is saying that worship should not be offered to God when the worshiper, it comes to his knowledge that his brother has something against him. So Jesus is saying, don't, don't really approach the altar as though everything were fine. God requires that our relationships with each other is right before we engage in worship with him. And the implication is that God will not receive our worship until it is. He's saying, don't bother offering your gift until things are made right, or until you've at least made an attempt to make things right. Now, this is interesting. Peter says that a husband who is not understanding to his wife and does not honor her should not expect God to hear his prayers, 1 Peter 3, 7. That's an interesting diagnostic, isn't it? But there's more. The same issue is addressed in Malachi 2, 13 through 14. And Proverbs 15, 18, or 15, 8 says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. David said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I know, I know it's there, but I don't want to, I don't want to confess it. I don't want to repent. I certainly don't want to confess it to the one I offended. That would require way too much humility. David says, Psalm 66, 18, the Lord won't even hear me. Job said, for what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much, if God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Job 27, 8 through 9. Don't, don't, he's saying, don't come here and pretend because that's just hypocrisy. Don't pretend like everything's okay and that God is just going to overlook your sin. God always require, has always required that our relationship to others be right before he receives our worship. Paul, I think, was probably most serious about this issue when he instructed the Corinthians in regard to the Lord's table. You know, the overall context there is, is really disturbing uh, because of all that was happening. The wealthy people of the church were mistreating the poor within their own fellowship. And so what they would do is, is you know, that evening would be the agape feast, which is a lot like a potluck. But in the, at the center of the potluck would be the table, the Lord's table, where they would celebrate communion. And the rich, we always have to pick on the rich, right? The rich, what they would do is they would drink all the wine. They were getting sloshed at a church function. And then before the poor could actually come to the service, they had eaten all the food. And these are the people that have their own money, enough money to buy their own food, their own wine, whatever. So they were fattened and drunk, come to the Lord's table as if they had done no wrong to the Lord or to their brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul says this to them. He says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He says, and for this reason, some among you are even sick and dead. God was judging the church of Corinth. I always thought, what if he started killing people today? Maybe we'd start taking things serious. <laughs> Just don't start with me, Lord. <laughs> All these other terrible people out there. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, really, don't, don't come here and worship the Lord when there's division between you and someone else. Reconciliation should be sought first. Relationships should be restored. Sin should be confessed. And repentance should be achieved. Now, I realize that not everybody is is willing to accept your penance, as it were. Not, I don't mean in the Catholic sense, but your, your sorrow, your, your contrition, your repentance. But if you've tried your best to be reconciled to other people and to restore what has been lost and they reject you, well, you've done your part and now 
they have to deal with the Lord. But it, you have to make an attempt, a strong attempt, before you just come here and, and, and raise your hands in worship and act like nothing's wrong. Okay? Jesus says, fix it. And I think that it would be the height of presumption to think that a holy God would just say, no, just come on in. It's okay. It's okay. When you regard iniquity in your heart or withhold forgiveness from someone or ignore the sin that you've committed, it's so presumptuous. Make it right with your brothers and sisters. Otherwise, God will block your number in a big way, in a bad way. It's a priority to God. Make it yours. And on a legal note, Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, Jesus, I wish he had said what the grievance was. Whatever it was, it was bad enough to do jail time for, and I know none of you would do anything like that. But he encourages us to settle out of court. Isn't that what he's saying? Yeah. So Christians who have done wrong to others, to whatever degree, should do their best to offer restitution. Okay? Because relationships are so important to God, he, he requires that we seek not only to restore the damages done, but to fix the relationship with those we've offended. <laughs> I don't know why we have to be told this stuff sometimes. I mean, it just seems so obvious, but we just have problems, don't we? Be sure to teach your kids this stuff, okay? Exercise it in the home so that when your kids uh, grow up and they do the wrong thing, they have before them the course of action that they ought to take. All right, now, when we look back on the text, we see Jesus placing responsibility on all parties. Did you notice that? The offended and the offender. It's, it's all parties. The offended person is responsible for not harboring anger toward the offender. It seems so unfair, doesn't it? But if we're to be like God, we, we have to do this. Murder is obviously off the table, but so is any kind of revenge or slander. You see, it all boils down to one thing. We have one option as the people of God, as citizens of heaven. It's called forgiveness. It's called forgiveness. Further into the sermon, Jesus will discuss the risk that people take when they do not forgive others. Jesus says that if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 12, 14 through 15. I've, ho- I've heard more sermons dismissing this and say, well, that's not what Jesus means. I mean, of course he would forgive you. Don't tell Jesus what he means. <laughs> Shut up and listen to what he's saying. He won't hear your prayers. He won't receive your worship or extend forgiveness to you if you are angry and withhold forgiveness from those who sin against you. So as Christians, God places great responsibility on the offended. We're not permitted to withhold forgiveness. We're not permitted to be angry or to slander. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against someone, forgive others even as the Lord forgave who? Me, you. Colossians 3.13. But Jesus also placed responsibility on the, the offender. This is the worst. We have to humble ourselves when we sin against people. Confess what we've done. Make restitution and attempt to restore. And then also an apology for one's sin is not always sufficient for an offense. Everybody knows that in Hollywood and the media right now. You can't just apologize your way out of this. They're going to draw blood I'm not, I'm not advocating for your blood atonement. 
restitution, by restoring what was lost or paying for damages. You know, that's a biblical principle. If you read the law of Moses, restitution is in there all the time. I wish our culture was better at it. When Jesus spoke of agreeing with your adversary in the way, he meant on the way to court. And the agreement has to do with a settlement. It has to do with restitution uh, for losses or damages. So an apology is not sufficient where restitution is necessary. Now, I, I attempted this once after vandalizing my science teacher's yard. I actually cut his tree down. And, um, and so I, I got found out, and the police were involved, of course. And so what I decided, with the wrong heart, was that I would grab my snow shovel. This is back in Wyoming, where there's real snow. And, and I thought, well, I'll shovel his driveway, and maybe that will propitiate, appease him. And he came out on his front porch and he says, what are you doing? I said, what am I doing? I mean, I'm being a good boy. He wasn't going for it. He, I couldn't settle with him on the way to court. And so I stood before a judge who gave me tons of community service. I worked for the city all day. And the problem, though, was with me, is that at the time I wasn't sorry what I did. I wasn't sorry. I wasn't a Christian. Um, no excuse for it anyway, but I wasn't sorry. I was sorry that I got caught, and I was trying to avoid another penal consequence. Um, I stood before judges way too many times. What I should have done, though, was paid for the damages out of my own pocket. I should have replanted the tree in the spring. Here you plant, you plant trees in February. You can't get a shovel in the ground in Wyoming, February. But I should have shoveled his driveway all winter. I should have mowed his grass and pulled his weeds all summer, bought the tree, replaced it. I mean, that would have been true restitution. But instead, I was handed over to the city, and they don't know what they're doing. And so I continued to offend. But um, we're pretty messed up. I, I messed up. I don't know about you guys. But, um, you know, there's something refreshing, isn't there, just about taking Jesus' words at face value and saying, the problem really is with me. I'm an angry person. I have outbursts of wrath. I get angry at my wife. I get angry at my kids. I feel justified in it. I get angry with my parents. I get angry with the police officer who pulled me over for breaking the law. I get angry. I get angry. I harbor bitterness. I despise people. You guys, we do it because we're broken. There's no excuse for it. But Christ, by his grace, would purge us and wash us and fix our relationships. Anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. Why don't you guys stand up? And we'll pray. I'll get you out of here.